During Lent, which is over now, so very excited about that. During Lent, we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Uh, John calls them signs. Uh, they are these supernatural events that point to something else. They point to something greater than even the miracle that they describe. They reveal who Jesus is and what He came to do. It's like a preview of life that is to come in Jesus. And so today on this Resurrection Day, we will consider the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus. So let me read to you John 11, beginning in verse 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible has two basic parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament before Christ and with Christ. And in the New Testament, the first four books are called the Gospels. They are accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the fourth of those is the Gospel of John, written by John, one of the disciples, one of the friends of Jesus who knew him, heard him speak, saw him die, and rise again. So I will read from John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, bro my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she, said, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, Now see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's Word. I'd like us to do three things today. I'd like us to feel the love of Jesus in this passage. I'd like us to see His glory in this passage. And then, finally, I'd like us to respond to this seventh sign. So love, glory, and a response to His sign. Now, John makes a point to tell us that Jesus loved Lazarus. When Lazarus' sisters uh, send word to Jesus that their brother was near death, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't even say the name. He whom you love is ill. And later in the story, when Jesus weeps, the bystanders say, see how he loved him. Now, this is important because without understanding Jesus' love, we cannot understand Jesus. He raises Lazarus because he loves Lazarus. Jesus saves because he loves. Love is what drives him. Love is the essence of who he is. The renowned Swiss-German theologian Karl Barth gave a speech at the University of Chicago in 1962. And during the Q&A after, a student asked him, said, Professor Bard, if you could put your theology into one sentence, 
what would it be? Bart reportedly responded by saying, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Christianity does not make sense without Jesus' love. It all hinges on love and falls apart without it. it. It's the simplest idea to explain. I can say it in a phrase, Jesus loves you, but it's one of the hardest things to grasp, to hold on to, to really feel, to build your life on. Every Christian is essentially working to understand what this love means and apply it and to live in it and to rest in it and to, to wrestle through life knowing that that love is always there. I wonder if you today, this morning, know, I mean, really know that Jesus loves you. When the Ukrainian president Zelensky visited the town of Bucha near Kiev, after the Russian army pulled out, he found a terrible, terrible thing. Mass graves, people shot dead and left lying on the streets, people tortured and killed with their hands tied behind their backs and basements. Family of the local mayor buried in the shallow grave. Women raped and murdered. And as the president was given talking to the journalist and describing what was happening, he was fighting back tears, usually composed and polished. He was trying to control his emotions, weeping and expressing outrage and anger against the genocide perpetrated by the Russian army because he loved his people. He wept and he was angry. And the same emotions, the very same emotions we see coming out from Jesus' love for Lazarus as he was faced with the death of his friend. Look at verse 35. We read, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet this is one of the more profound verses in the Bible. Here we have the creator of the world grieving the death of one person. Now, what this tells us is that what happened to Lazarus was utterly unnatural. Death does not belong in God's good creation. Death is an intruder. And so Jesus weeps because it grieves him to see death where there should be life. And so he weeps in sorrow. But added to that sorrow is also anger. Twice John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved, verses 33 and 38. He was deeply moved. Now, this is a, a tricky word to translate. It's often used to refer to the snorting of horses, snorting of animals in anger. When used of people, it denotes outrage and indignation and, and rage and anger. This is what's happening here. Jesus is rebuking death. Jesus is angry at death. Like a war horse preparing for battle, Jesus is about to attack and defeat death as he raises Lazarus from the dead. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that these emotions of grief 
and anger, this sorrow and outrage coming from the same heart that we see in Jesus is one of the best apologetics for Christianity. Because we all feel exactly the same when we lose a loved one. What Jesus is feeling here is utterly natural and normal. Anytime a human person loses a loved one, they feel sorrow and anger. There's a profound sense of loss which makes us cry at funerals. But in our more private moments, we admit that we feel like we've been robbed. Something's been taken from us. Something that belongs to us has been taken. And we feel that this loss isn't right. It shouldn't happen this way. Nobody's supposed to die, and yet I'm at a funeral with a dead body. And so we angrily ask why. Why such an unnatural thing is happening to us. This kind of angry sorrow is universal. And yet most of us have been told again and again that death is natural, that we all die, that there's a circle of life and people die, babies are born. And many people accept this idea intellectually. It's drilled into us to think of death as something normal. We accept it intellectually, but I am not sure that there is a single heart in this world that truly believes it. You see, we instinctively reject that death is in any way normal. Our mind may tell us that, yeah, everybody dies, that's just the reality, accept it. But our heart tells us that we've all been created for life, not for death. That nobody's supposed to die. This is utterly unnatural. And we should grieve and we should get angry when something is taken from us, when any life is distorted, when any life ends. Christianity tells us why we feel this way. The Bible tells us that we are created for eternal life. When God made us, He didn't make us for death. He made us so we would live forever. God has put eternity into our hearts, Ecclesiastes says. He's placed eternity into our hearts, meaning that we are wired to live. We're not wired to die. We've been designed to live. So when something happens to us that disrupts that life, and death is the greatest example of that, but when something happens to us, we naturally feel that this doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong in this world. It shouldn't happen. That's why nobody's happy when anybody gets sick. When an accident happens, when an injury happens, all of us feel this is strange. It doesn't belong in this world. It shouldn't happen. And so we grieve and we get angry at it. While we live in a world clearly dominated by death, we can never feel at peace with it. One of the proofs that Christianity is true is that it helps us understand how our hearts feel why we feel that, unlike any other worldview, Christianity helps us understand ourselves. So what else can we learn about the love of Jesus from our passage? Look at verse 7. Jesus decides to go to Judea where Lazarus is. The disciples immediately understand the risk. The re religious leaders in and around Jerusalem have been increasingly hostile to Jesus. Last time he was there, they almost stoned him to death. If he goes back... He may never return alive. 
Thomas the twin is resigned to the idea that if they go, they're all going, they're all going to die. But Jesus loved Lazarus so much that he went anyway. And if you keep reading this chapter, you will find that it is the miracle of raising Lazarus, specifically this miracle, that prompts the religious leaders to come up with a plan that results in Jesus' arrest and execution. This is verse 53. That the resurrection of Lazarus, done out of love for him, Jesus coming to Judea, actually puts things in motion that results in the cross of Jesus. Jesus' love isn't just emotional. It is sacrificial. He came to die for us because he loves us. Jesus was not just risking his life by coming to Judea. He was given his life. He knew what was going to happen. He was given his life, and not just for Lazarus, but for all who believe in him. I wonder if you realize this morning how deep his love is for you, how strong it is for you, how unrelenting he is in his pursuit of relationship with you. Oh, how much he loves you enough to die. Now let me ask a question that is asked three times in our passage. Martha asks it in, in, in verse 21, Mary in verse 20, 32, and the Jews in verse 37. They're all wondering why Jesus, who loved Lazarus, loved him to this extent, loved him enough to die for him, loved him enough to be outraged at death, loved him enough to cry, why this Jesus who loved him so much, let him die. When he comes, they're all saying, why didn't you just heal him? Why did you wait so long? If you came earlier, he wouldn't have died at all. We wouldn't be having a funeral. We wouldn't put him in the tomb. Why didn't you save him then, when he was sick? I would imagine that most readers reading this chapter for the first time are asking exactly the same question. Why raise Lazarus after he had been in the grave for four days when Jesus could have prevented his death altogether? My wife knows a woman who fell off a ladder when she was, was painting and was badly hurt. After surgery and weeks and months of physical therapy, she says that she is amazed how smoothly everything went considering all that needed to be done, the timing, the right doctors, the right responses, the right medication, the right therapy. Everything seemed to be exactly in the right order and working exactly as it was supposed to. Everything just sort of fallen into place after her accident. Now, she's a Christian, and she sees God's hand in her healing and recovery. And so she says, God, I thank you that for all that you've done for me. But Lord, couldn't you just steady the ladder? Why go through all this if God could have easily prevented all of that from happening? This is the question that this text, this text is asking us. If Jesus could have just healed him before he died, why didn't he? Why did he wait? Why did he delay? Why did he come when Lazarus was in the tomb for four days? And John is not avoiding this question. And I think he answers it for us too. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
John tells us exactly that Jesus knew that Lazarus was ill and that Jesus chose to stay two extra days before coming to Lazarus's aid. Jesus deliberately delayed coming to Lazarus to make sure he was dead. According to the Jewish customs of the day, people waited four days to conclude that the person was really dead. Now, there was a spiritual reason for that. They thought that within the three, four days that, that the spirit could still return to the body, that maybe it was a temporary separation of spirit and body, but there are also medical reasons. People didn't have the same technology, the same knowledge to know that the person was really dead. Sometimes people looked dead and they weren't. So you put them in the tomb and you kind of wait for a couple of days, see if they come out. And some came out. What Jesus is doing here is waiting until there is absolutely no question whether Lazarus is actually dead. By delaying for two days, he made sure that when he came to Bethany and raised Lazarus, nobody would be saying, oh, Lazarus was never dead. It was just a couple of days. He was just sleeping. He wanted there to be no doubt that this was a resurrection. Not a resuscitation, but a resurrection. Okay, well, that may explain why Jesus waited for this specific number of days, but why did he wait at all? If he had the power to resurrect Lazarus, whom he loved, he surely had the power to heal him from his illness. He didn't even need to be there. We have other miracles where Jesus does it over a long distance. He doesn't even need to go there and touch anybody. He just raises somebody, he just heals somebody over a long distance. But this is what Jesus tells us about his decision to not go there and heal Lazarus or not heal him at all. Verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says, ultimately, Lazarus will not end up dead, but everything that is going to happen will glorify me. As you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is very intentional and deliberate about his choices. This is a choice Jesus makes to make sure that his glory is revealed. So he waits the right amount of days. He does not heal his sickness. He waits until he dies so he can resurrect him so that his glory can be revealed. Now, let me give you an illustration of what glory is and how it works. Several years ago in the summer of 2019, Albert Pujols came to St. Louis after his team, when his team was, new team was playing, the Cardinals. I think it was the first time he returned to Bush Stadium after he had left the Cardinals. And before one of the games, Pujols was asked for an autograph by a kid with Down syndrome. And instead of signing the kid's jersey, Pujols took his jersey off, signed it, and gave it to the kid. For those of us who have children with special needs and know how much the Pujols family has done for the Down syndrome community in St. Louis, it was a sweet moment. It was great to see that again. And later, Pujols hit a home run at Bush Stadium. And even though he was playing for the other team, in the classic St. Louis fashion, he received a standing ovation from the home crowd. The fans cheered because they saw 
Pujols' glory. He did what he does. He revealed who he is. He gave a kid with Down syndrome his jersey, and he hit a home run. It was a revelation of Pujols' nature, of his glory, of who he is. That's what glory is. Glory is just an expression of one's nature. It's a shining forth of who the person is or who the thing, what the thing is. And so Jesus, in this raising of Lazarus, specifically and intentionally planned, shows his glory. He shows who he is. He expresses who he is so we can see him as he is, so we can know him as he is, and ultimately so we can believe in him as he is. Now, he does two things to reveal his glory. First, he says something, and second, he does something. This is what he says, verses 25 and 26. He's talking to Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He reveals something essential about himself. He says, I am. This is a statement of essence. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not I give life, which of course he does, but I am life. When you're dealing with Jesus, you're not dealing with someone who has power over life. But he himself is life. And there simply is no life apart from him. This is the glory of Jesus that needed to be seen by Martha and Mary and all the Jews and Lazarus himself and everyone who reads this account. This is why Jesus delayed coming to Bethany so that everyone will see him as he is, creator and restorer of all life. In other words, God. God's glory is revealed through this resurrection, this raising of Lazarus in exactly this kind of circumstance engineered by Jesus so that we can see him as he is, so we can hear him say, I am the resurrection and the life and believe him. Now I want us to see that what Jesus offers go so far beyond what we might wish in a moment of grief. We want consolation. We want comfort. We want hope. We want healing. But Jesus offers resurrection. In all his glory, as he comes into a situation, as he comes into a life, what he gives us is a resurrection, not just consolation, but a resurrection. His gifts are always bigger than we imagine. We've seen it again and again working through these signs in John that every time Jesus surprises us by giving us more than we ask for, more than we can imagine, more than we think we need, more than we even want. And he gives it to us by grace. Tim Keller, the preacher from New York City, tells of a, a recurring nightmare he has. He says that about once a year, a couple times a year, he has this nightmare where, where he finds out that his wife is dead. And he says, consolation would be to wake up and realize that even though his wife is dead, he has remarried, and his new wife is lying right next to him. And the sorrow and loss of the first wife is kind of faded now, and God has restored his life. That's consolation. But resurrection, he says, resurrection is to wake up and realize that the dream was not true. Jesus promises a morning after a nightmare. 
He promises that when we are resurrected, when we wake up, when we meet him, things that we thought were terrible are simply shown to be unreal and untrue and restored to such an extent that there's not even a regret and a mourning and a weeping associated with that loss. It's, it's an amazing promise that Jesus makes. Not a consolation. I know some of us, we would just love to be consoled by him. We would love to get something from him to help us deal with our pain. But that is not what he's offering. He can do that, but what he's offering is a resurrection, a whole new life, a life that is so much better than this life, you see, that we won't really remember this life. It'll be so much better. It'll be so much greater. It'll be so dominated by his glory. It'll be hard for us to understand how we even struggled with this momentary affliction. Now, secondly, he says who he is and reveals his glory in that way, but he also does something to reveal who he is. Standing at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you see how he brings glory into this resurrection? And then in a loud voice with great authority, Jesus commands, Lazarus, come out. And it's good that Jesus called him by name because he would have emptied out a couple of graveyards in Jerusalem if he didn't mention his name. And Lazarus, this man who had died, who really died, and everybody knew he died, and he was in the tomb for four days, and he smelled his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He comes out. He comes out in obedience to the command of the Lord of life. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Let him live. Let him live just a little bit longer. Let him live. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. This is his glory coming out. Everything is set up so we can see him as he is. His glory coming out. As the dead man walks out of the tomb, we see his glory. As he shakes off the stink of death, we see Christ's glory. As he rips off his funeral clothes, the glory of God visits Bethany in Judea. And John calls this miracle a sign. This is the seventh sign in the gospel. And signs point to something even more important. Signs in themselves are deficient. They only are important as they point to something else. As great as this resurrection is, as amazing as this display of glory is in Bethany, an even greater glory is about to be revealed. And as you read the Gospel of John, you get a clear sense that all these miracles are a prelude to the ultimate display of glory. What is it? Jesus called it the hour, the hour the hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. He was talking about the cross and the resurrection, this, this great event where finally he was going to be put to death for our sinners. And finally, on the third day, he would rise again for our justification. Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. And on the third day, that early Easter morning, he rose, he got up. And in that resurrection, 
as much glory as we saw in Lazarus' resurrection, but in his and his own, in Jesus' resurrection, the whole creation, not just Lazarus, but the whole creation has been given new life. And because Jesus rose again, everyone who believes in him, just as he said, will live forever. For a Christian, there is no sickness that leads to death. Not even death leads to death for a Christian. No cancer leads to death for a Christian. Death has been transformed for all who believe in Jesus because of his resurrection, because of that display of glory in that early morning empty tomb. As a poet said, the resurrection of Jesus changed death from an executioner to a gardener. Death used to be an executioner we were scared of, and you should be scared of an executioner. He can kill you. But now, because of the resurrection of the Son of God, that event, that thing that used to be so oppressive, so scary, so damaging, so dominating our world, has been reshaped, changed into a gardener that raises a new tree, that plants a seed that will grow forever. It used to signify the end, the final chapter of the story, but now, in the resurrection of Jesus, death ushers a new life for a Christian. So as you're struggling with sickness, some of you have cancer. Some of your loved ones have terrible diseases, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. We see so much dysfunction in our lives. This is what this world is. And we respond to it with tears, yes, tears, rightly so, grieving death, and also anger that this death has taken things from us, has taken life from us. But as we wrestle with that, in Christ, remembering the resurrection of the Son of God, hope begins to rise. Hope begins to rise that in this world, death will rule, but past this world, as we've already seen in the resurrection, past this world, life will rule. And we are already experiencing that ourselves in Christ. Because the wages of sin are death, and the wages have been paid by him. And because he paid the wages, death has no control over us anymore. So a Christian is not scared of death. It's not an executioner. It's a gardener. And we're happy to see gardeners. We're happy to walk around in gardens because we see new life springing from our very hearts. C.S. Lewis, speaking of Christ's resurrection, said, He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. So how should we respond to the sign, to the seventh sign and what it points to? John is very clear that every sign of Jesus challenges us to believe. Life from the resurrected Jesus comes to us, comes into our existence through our faith. Faith is the channel. That's what John says at the end of his book. John 20, 30, and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these signs, including the raising of Lazarus, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Even in our passage, we find Jesus say in verse 15 that he is glad that he was not there to prevent Lazarus' death so that the disciples may believe. And in verse 42, Jesus prays, but he prays for the benefit of those who hear him so that they may believe in him. The whole account of Lazarus' resurrection is recorded so that we, so that you may believe in Jesus and have life in him today. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha and he asks all of us, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus came to die and rise for you? The resurrection of Lazarus is a great picture of a Christian conversion. That first encounter with Christ's life, first time he calls you and you come to him and you realize what he's given you. Jesus comes to your tomb and finds the stone tightly covering it and the smell of death inside. And he rolls away the stone and he calls your name and you who were once spiritually dead come out alive. And he says, let him live. Unbind him, let him live. And we live. And this eternal life becomes bigger and bigger and more real until he returns and transforms not just us, but the whole world. And death is no more. If you've been converted, and by conversion I mean this this encounter with Christ, this life-changing experience when the Holy Spirit gives you a new life, you know how true this imagery is. Because you too used to stink before Jesus found you, right? You remember that. There was a stink of death and sin on you. And the stone was covering your tomb and you couldn't move it. And you were without hope. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such were some of you. You were that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christ called your name, and he gave you life. I was converted at 16 years old, which means I was without Christ for 16 years, living in the tomb, decaying, unable to get out, the stone of guilt and meaninglessness and shame too heavy for me to move. I smelled of lust and arrogance and cowardice, And then Jesus, my Jesus, called my name. I was not looking for him, and yet he was looking for me. He called, and I saw his glory, and I felt his love, and I received his gift of life for me. I believed that he died for me to free me from death, to let me out, to let me live. And I believe that he rose from me to be reconciled with God and to have life, real life, eternal life forever. Maybe that's your story. Many of you, that's our story. 
That's what we have experienced. But if it isn't, haven't you had enough of death? Haven't you had enough of the smell of death on you, hiding behind the stone and the tomb, decaying and just waiting for death to completely destroy you? Jesus is coming to you. He's looking for you. Do you feel his love? Do you know how much he loves you? Enough to come for you, enough to die for you, enough to find you, enough to get you, enough to convince you to believe in him, enough to give you his Holy Spirit, to change your whole constitution. Do you see his glory? This is who he is. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He comes to you to save you because he loves you. And he's calling your name today. He's calling your name. Come out of the tomb. Come out of the tomb and believe. And follow the sign of Lazarus all the way to your resurrection and to the embrace of God in the new creation.